one specific text. I will not start the sermon with the text, but instead will be pointing to specific biblical principles and passages throughout the sermon. Let us join together in prayer as we prepare to examine the word of the Lord together. Dear Father, I pray that as we consider the prospect of the changes in our uh, lifestyle and culture that may or may not occur as this year comes and century comes to a close, <clears throat> we pray that you would help us above all else to remember that you call us to faithfulness regardless of the circumstances around us. And that faithfulness does not change even as your word has not changed from the point in time when you, through the authors, inspired its writing. I pray that my words would be faithful and in keeping with your word because it is your word alone that is holy and just and true. And it clearly presents to us your will for us, your work through history, and your unchanging nature. And we ask these things together, beseeching you, even as we have sung in our brethren, we have met together him this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us, because that is what we depend upon in order for our hearts to be touched and our lives to be changed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I begin the message this Sunday by quoting, as I did last week in the midst of the sermon, from World Magazine's mailbag, Letters to the Editor. Now, incidentally, if you have wondered, I know many of you are familiar with the magazine and get it, but uh, if you've wondered what this magazine that I keep on pointing to is, I <clears throat> we have a lot of uh, copies a week or two or three or four outdated in the nursery on the shelves. Please look at them. Please take them. I think it's the <clears throat> uh, premier news magazine, weekly news magazine today from a Christian perspective. And because it's from a Christian perspective, you get the news and you get all of it. And it's not just certain things that they want you to to get. <coughs> this, is the, this is the letter. <coughs> and it's in the context of articles that were written last year about the year 2000, the Y2K bug, the possible disturbances that may arise in our culture and in our world as a result of the problems surrounding computer chips, computer programming that only have two digits for the year, whereas now we are going from a 9-9 not to a 0-0, but instead to a 2-0-0-0. This is the letter. Only a fool would do nothing when confronted with such clear evidence of potential problems. I would rather see 2,000 come in with no problem at all and be called an alarmist than to see the problems materialize and have even one person say, Why didn't you warn me? This is written by a Jim Wade from Huntsville, Texas. <coughs> Now, at the risk of being unfair in responding to the author of this letter, let me comment. The author says, again, I read, I would rather see 2,000 come in with no problems at all and be called an alarmist, obviously because he's concerned that there are going to be serious and drastic problems. I would rather be called an alarmist uh, 
than to see the problems materialize and have even one person say, why didn't you warn me? It may seem off the subject, but as Christians, there is an issue, an impending event, a certainty that is fast approaching about which we are required to function as watchmen on the walls of the city. An impending disaster which we are to be constantly warning people to flee. A dreaded happening which will bring certain doom to those who are not prepared for it. And it is not, I state again, is not the Y2K bug or the possible consequences of that event. Instead, it is expressed in Scripture in this way. Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Hebrews 9.27 Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We are indeed to be messengers who fear the consequences of failing to warn others. The author of this letter has it right in one sense. We should fear people coming to us and saying to us, Why did you not warn me? But the disaster that we know for a certainty is not what may come as a result of the beginning of the next millennium, but instead the disastrous eternal consequences of the failure of individuals to turn to Christ and place their faith in him and thereby escape the wrath of God at the judgment. It's not a judgment or a time of judgment such as you or I might endure in traffic court, but instead it is a... No appeals judgment, an awesome judgment that is a judgment for eternity, in which the eternal fate of all people would determine whether to spend eternity in heaven with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ or to spend eternity in hell, separated forever from the blessings of the Lord in a place of constant torment. Put in this perspective... Fears concerning Y2K are minuscule, smaller than minuscule. As we consider what it may be like come the next year due to the consequences of shortcuts in computer programming and embedded computer chips, our minds paint different pictures depending upon our view of exactly what will happen. We have different views as individuals, which is only natural. Some of our minds picture life going on as it does now, with peace and tranquility being the rule, a sound economy, plenty of jobs, no shortage of supply in all the necessities of life or even in the luxuries of life, which we enjoy so freely and abundantly. Others among us have minds that have darker scenes peopling the landscape. With bands of looters perhaps rioting in our community and in other urban centers because the economy has shut down, as have all the services and supplies of our communities. 
Last week I also referred as a, as a source to a book by Stephen Ambrose, D-Day, June 6, 1944, The Climactic Battle of World War II. It's a book that I've been reading that provides a fascinating and heart-rending look at the preparation for and events of the invasion of the coast of Normandy by many brave men. One quote that I've been reading jumped out at me. In his oral history, one survivor of the invasion landing on Omaha Beach, and Omaha Beach, I believe, was the beach that was uh, pictured in Saving Private Ryan. Uh, One survivor gave this as part of his oral history. He said, I have often told my two sons, I have no fear of hell because I have already been there. As we consider the circumstances of those who live in the world around us, and as we think about those who have endured torments such as the invasion of what was called Omaha Beach in Normandy, we gain an appreciation for the ease and the comfort of our daily lives, the luxury and the privilege which are our lot. Others are not only not so fortunate, but are indeed impoverished, Many, dying of famine, of drought and disease, fleeing bullets and torture from an enemy filled with a very real hate. They do not know the luxury of choosing whether to rent a movie, go for a walk, or watch a TV program, for all their energy is spent in survival, merely survival. And when they are not scavenging for water or crumbs to eat, They lie on any spot of ground exhausted by the small effort that's required to keep life within themselves due to their malnourishment. This is putting, and this is what I desire to do, this is putting our national obsession with Y2K in perspective. This is examining the situation as it really is in comparison with the world around us. And when we re-examine this World War II vet's words to his sons, we see them seeking to provide shorthand for the vivid memories of a day of slaughter and mayhem that was horror and fear-filled in every respect. Yet these words ring false, for this man has never been in hell. And the fact that we can speak of the sacrifice of so many noble men on the shores of Normandy and be awed at the privilege which is ours in living lies of peace and luxury because of their sacrifice is testimony to the fact that this man never went through hell. <clears throat> For in hell there is absolutely no hope, no expectation of help or future of any kind, no opportunity to look back and find that things have improved in any respect from what they used to be. For they cannot improve, will not improve, and the complete absence of God's blessing upon those who dwell there means that hope is completely gone. Dante, in his imagination, pictured this comment, this quote, above the gate to hell. This way for the sorrowful city, this way for eternal suffering, this way to join the lost people, Abandon all hope, you who enter. In light of this grim reminder that our concerns are much greater than whether or not we have power, heat, running water, and food at the grocery store come next January, 
In view of the awesome responsibility that we have to warn people of the eternal consequences of life here on this earth and the way in which they prepare for the hereafter, you and I must awaken to the insignificance of the threat from the Y2K bug. Awaken to the insignificance of the threat from the Y2K bug. Now, I'm speaking here this Sunday. The first Sunday was an overview of the situation. The second Sunday, last Sunday, was <clears throat> biblical response preparation to Y2K. And this Sunday, it's a biblical response to living in the year 2000. <clears throat> so first, what will we do living in a new century, in a new millennia? First, we must cast aside our fears of inconvenience and disaster. <clears throat> this affects the way in which we approach anything that happens. As servants of the Most High, our way is directed by the Lord, and we ourselves are in His powerful and compassionate hands. <clears throat> Certainly there is no guarantee of the present or of the future. We do not know if we will live or if we will die, if we will be in full health or struck down with illness living in happiness with our family and friends around us, or perhaps even as Joseph was, and as Cassie reminded us to pray for this John Reyes, thrown into prison because of false accusations. <clears throat> so do we live in fear? Or do we live bravely and boldly, trusting in the Lord? You and I may say at any point in time that we are living confidently with faith in the Lord. But in reality... The question we must ask ourselves is, is it the Lord who is our strength and our confidence, our shield, as the psalmist says? Or is it the comfort of our situations, our health, our wealth, our family and friends, all of these things which provide a buffer and a safety net and a sense of ease and comfort for our lives? When there is no trouble, it is not difficult to proclaim faith in the Lord. <clears throat> when things are difficult... Our presence or lack of faith is tested and made visible or proven not to be there, whether we trust or doubt. This was the case, if you recollect and have studied it at all, in the life of Job, in the book of Job in the Old Testament, the book before Psalms. <clears throat> this was the case in his life and the reason why Satan accused him as a man he said before the Lord in the first chapter, if you wish to read it, he said, is, is not Job trusting in you? And this is my paraphrase. Because you have put a hedge around him. <clears throat> you have blessed him and protected him on every side. Is it surprising that he trusts in you? Who would not trust in one who provided for him in such a manner? <clears throat> the test of Job's faith came when he first lost wealth, home, and family. Then he was tested to the utmost through the loss of his health and the accusations of his friends. <clears throat> it is natural for you and for me to want our current situation, our comfort to continue, <clears throat> because we have it good indeed. But if our Christian maturity is to be tested, then, although we dread and concern, we anticipate such tests of our faith in order for the Lord to be glorified in our continued faithfulness, regardless of what comes. <clears throat> I can remember vividly various people whose lives have been interrupted by tragedy and difficulty. 
people who I've talked to personally as a friend or an acquaintance or a pastor. The saddest of those whose lives have been interrupted in these ways have been those whose faith has not withstood the test. Those who have faced perhaps the death of a husband or a wife and whose lives ended at that point, whose usefulness shriveled up when that comfort and blessing was taken from them. For such people, this change in situation meant the end of their pleasant existence, and they never got over it. Sadness, as we were discussing in the adult Sunday school class this morning, is natural, appropriate, and it would be strange if there was not great and deep sorrow as a result of a loss of a loved one. But the tragic cases are not those who grieve their loved ones, but instead those whose lives end at that point for all intents and purposes. They do not die then, many of them, but from that point on, all they are doing is looking back in nostalgia and sorrow for what used to be and not considering the current blessings and usefulness that is theirs as individuals. For such people, they have been of no use to themselves or anyone else from that point onward. Is this the way that we want our lives to become what may? People who are constantly looking back to the pleasantries and joys of the past, people filled with nostalgia and with absolutely no anticipation, or people who are constantly useful. Would we not rather be people who, come what may, are constantly useful? People who anticipate the future because of the opportunities to serve the Lord. This must be our outlook, come what may, in the year 2000. Whether the disaster we face comes as a result of Y2K, through technological breakdown and all that that brings about in our society, or has changed abruptly through a disaster such as Istanbul's earthquake. For those whose lives are devoted to the person and commands of Christ, we must not put our comforts before our dedication to serve our Lord with joy, come what may, in sickness and in health, in poverty or in wealth. There are many who are anticipating disaster in the upcoming year, seeking desperately to keep it from happening to them or affecting them. They're fleeing the culture. They're fleeing their neighbors. They're building a contemporary version of a monastery where they live a subsistence lifestyle out in the country, far away from any neighbors who are not their own personal family or friends. God does not want us to be unprepared. But neither does he want us to give up being salt and light in the world because we are afraid of losing the good life. If we sacrifice so much in order to protect ourselves and our families from any possible or even likely harm, who are we serving, him or the God of comfort and ease? We must not only cast aside fear, of inconvenience and disaster and discomfort in the year 2000. We must do all to the glory of God. Certainly, certain actions and responses in the midst of whatever comes in the coming year are more pleasing to God and serve more to glorify Him than other responses, right? Does He care or does He not care? He cares. There are things that he would have us doing. Even though there is an appropriate situation for a great variety among the believers. Does Christ not say, Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. 
city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. If he so boldly and explicitly makes these statements about Christian witness, then certain things are true as a rule and in specific cases. First, that he has brought us to faith in him for us to live so that the world will see us out in the open. He has not brought us to faith in him so that we will hibernate in seclusion behind walls and closed doors. How do I get this from the Matthew 5 passage? A light hidden under a bushel is ineffective. No one sees it. It lights the way for no one. It exposes darkness for no one. It is of no help. And that is what he calls us, lights to light up the world. If our light is to be such that it points people to praising our Father in heaven, then our light must be publicly visible for people to see even or perhaps especially when the rest of the world is selfishly refusing to do good deeds and the only people who might help would be those who respond to a higher calling. Then is when the light of our lives through good deeds we perform should be the most visible, when the darkness around us is most intense. Consider the account of the Good Samaritan who helped the man who had been beaten, robbed, and left for dead by bandits. The sanctimonious, self-righteous, praising themselves religious men had walked by on the other side of the street, refusing to take any risks and refusing to get involved, even though this man was a threat to no one. Christ wants us to imitate the Good Samaritan, not the selfish and fearful religious leaders. Yet many are preparing to do just the opposite in light of possible technological disaster that may or may not come four months from now. He has brought us, not only he has brought us to faith in him so that we will live, so that the world will see us, he has brought us to know him so that we will live in the present for a future hope. We are motivated to do this, sacrificing ourselves in the present for the future. Because we look back to the example of Christ and see, even as we've celebrated in the Lord's Supper today, that Christ sacrificed himself for us. We are also motivated to do this because we know that the things that we are living for and enjoying now, this is not the end all. We are not living explicitly for this life. We have a hope which is much farther than and greater than and more glorious and precious than this life. Consider the story of the rich man and the ill man Lazarus. Now, this is not Mary and Martha's brother, but instead the parable that Christ told. The rich man and the ill man Lazarus who lived as a beggar outside the rich man's gate. When both died, the rich man went to hell while Lazarus was welcomed into heaven. One who had barely existed because of the wretched conditions of his life and health went to the bliss and joy of heaven for eternity. While the other, who had had an extravagant lifestyle and was spared no comfort whatsoever and no, no, had no difficulty whatsoever, 
went to the torture of hell. Our goal is not to live in ease now. Does Christ not tell us, take up your cross and follow me? He who wishes to gain his life should lose it. And he who will lose his life is he who seeks to gain it. We so easily forget these things because comfort is addicting. We also know that in order to be lights to shine brightly to the glory of God, whatever we have, we must share. Whatever we have, we must share. Everything from the gospel of Jesus Christ to our possessions and our families. Matthew 5, 47, Christ says, this is further on in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Let me reemphasize that. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so what Christ is telling those who are seeking to follow him and to live godly lives in his footsteps is that even the worldly people, even those who know nothing about faith and nothing about God, provide for their own love those who love them, and help those who help them. Christ calls his own to live according to a different, diametrically opposed, completely opposite standard. According to his standard, even as he refuses to allow us to do what comes naturally, to flee because of our fears, he refuses to allow us to behave in other, utterly selfish ways. belonging to closed societies in which the help and the friendship and the kindness is all focused inwards and none of it is focused outside on the world about. He refuses to allow us to devote our kindness only to those who are kind or neutral to us. He goes even farther and says that our kindness and compassion and ministry must extend to those who hate us. That includes everyone. Sharing, therefore, among the body of Christ is not to be limited to those who call themselves Christians or to those who are favorably disposed to the Christians, but it also must include those who are explicit enemies. I remember living in Chicago during the snowstorm in uh, January of 1978. The snow was so high that you stepped up from the sidewalk onto the street. They couldn't plow the roads due to all the cars that couldn't be moved. We made a wall of snow around my sister's two cars so that she had a four-foot-high carport out in the middle of Walton Street. Oh, it was Kenmore at that point, I guess. Out in the middle of Kenmore. And she would pull one car forward and go out to drive someplace, and we'd pull the other car forward to block off the back spot. It was pretty clever. But there was something unusual about living at that point in time in the city of Chicago. I was there for just about a month's time. During that time, the unthinkable happened in that city. When you went walking out in the snow, 
you could actually talk with people and they would respond to you. During normal times, people in Chicago, like any major city, do not talk with strangers, period. It's as simple as that. During the snowstorm here two winters ago, there were opportunities to shovel driveways for people who couldn't do it themselves, many other opportunities to help others, lots of time for good conversation. Unusual unusual circumstances present such opportunities. And so you and I must anticipate situations where we will have and use the opportunities that unusual circumstances present for the glory of God. In Ephesians 2.10, we are told this, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do what? Huh? What are we created? That's right. Created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This passage tells us that the Lord has prepared a situation where it is his intent that we provide the solution to problems and be those who meet the needs of others. And so we must eagerly anticipate those opportunities that the Lord has prepared for us ahead of time to minister in his name to those who have needs. Now, the year 2000, if disaster comes, will present many magnificent opportunities for the Christian to minister to those who are in desperate straits. This fits in well with the passage of 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. If the year 2000 ushers in disaster, will we have hope? I certainly hope so. That's my hope. Because our hope is not in technological smoothness, the comfort and ease of our lives, but instead our hope is on a world that is guaranteed and sure, as unchanging as our Heavenly Father is unchanging. And if we look to the year 2000 and everything to go smoothly for us and the world around us, then our hope can be devastated. But if we look to heaven, then our hope will never be disappointed. Putting the two together, that God has prepared good works for us to do, and that we must be prepared to give the reason for the hope that is within us, an example of witnessing, we anticipate those occasions. I'm not saying that we are hoping that things will go terribly come the next century. But if they do, wonderful, we will have many opportunities to be God's gracious help, to fulfill doing the good works that the Lord has prepared for us. This light shed on the matter may lead us to shift our focus in preparing for the prospects in Y2K from worrying about ourselves and our families or from not worrying because we doubt that there will be any significant problems to making provisions to have extra on hand Not so much for ourselves, but for the possibility that the Lord will give us an opportunity to use our abundance to do good works by helping others in need. Now, what good could Y2K do the church? I think in our culture, in the cradle-to-grave society that we find ourselves today, a welfare state, we're living in a situation where mercy has been taken out of the hands of the Christians in the church and placed in the hands of the government. And as a result, we as God's people have grown unused to and rusty, just like the tin soldier in the Wizard of Oz before he was oiled, 
We have grown rusty at doing those things that God has called us to do, to be compassionate and minister to a hurting world around us. When I get calls here at the church <coughs> from people who have financial needs, there are certain questions that I ask their people that I've never heard of or met before. <coughs> And it's always fascinating to me how many of them are calling from a phone that is in their own home with financial needs. It's always fascinating even further to me to hear a television going on in the background and, and it's cable. And I think these sorts of things are the sorts of things that give us the sense that there are very few people who have explicit, genuine needs in our midst. We do not see the people that Andy has described constantly needing help in Tanzania or in other parts of the world. And so we have grown, for good or bad reasons, unused to ministering to those around us, unused to seeing needs and seeking to meet them. Because we know that if a person has cable, uh, you know, there's a very easy way to free up a certain amount of money to provide for food or whatever comes as a necessity. Uh, But I hope by God's grace that whatever happens in the next century, we, the church, will see and make opportunities to be the ministers of God's grace in a culture which is moving farther and farther away from him. If disaster comes, then we of all people should be glad for the opportunities that presented to us. If disaster does not come, then we continue to seek to live faithful lives in a world which is turned away from God and which is reaping the whirlwind from sowing the wind. Let us pray. Dear Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful people for you in the midst of whatever the future brings. Help us to remember that faithfulness for you starts today. Help us to live for you and seek to honor you. And seek with eagerness to find those situations where you have prepared good works for us to do to be a blessing to others. We ask you to teach us in these ways, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.